So, um, as we begin this evening, um, I want to give a special shout-out. Maybe if you want to turn the lights up. Um, So, a special shout-out. Earlier today, Allison and I were sitting at the table, and um, we were talking about uh, church and all the various things that go into um, making this happen every week, and recruiting volunteers and things like that. And uh, as we're in the middle of our conversation, um, Eli, my son, who is uh, nine, comes into the, into the room where we're talking, and he's like, guys, don't stress. I can help. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, I know you're looking for volunteers. I can volunteer, okay? And we're like, okay, well, we appreciate you doing that. And he, he's like, mom, you're talking about the kids care stuff, because we've got a number of families in our church that couldn't be here tonight to have small children. So we're talking about our kids' area, and we're talking about running media, um, the, uh, the, the presentation every week. And she's like, you know, I can't be two places at once. And Eli's like, Mom, I will take care of one of them, okay? You do kids' stuff, I'll run the, the, the presentation, the PowerPoint. And uh, he's like, I've seen you do it. Let me do it. I'll volunteer. And so tonight, Eli has been by himself running the presentation, um, and so I want to give a special shout out to my boy. I can't see your head over the computer, son, but I'm proud of you. <laughs> I love you, boy. Um, so a uh, couple of housekeeping items. Normally, we meet at 530-ish. Uh, next week, we will be meeting significantly earlier. And the reason for that is because my family is going to Disney World. So... Uh, We're going to spend a couple of weeks at Disney World, and uh, we're really excited about that. We fly out of Indianapolis next week, so we have to leave early. Thus, we have to have church early. During one of the Sundays that I'm gone, I'll I'll be gone one Sunday, um, our very own Justin will be preaching that week. Um, So I'm really excited about that. Justin is one of the PhD students at Notre Dame, and probably the smartest guy in this church I don't know all of your IQs, but uh, chances are Justin is far and away the, the smartest person here. Um, probably could think circles around all of us. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. That'll be in two Sundays, the Sunday uh, that we're gone. So next week, rather than meeting at 5.30, we'll meet at 3. Okay, middle of the afternoon. You might have to cancel your afternoon nap that you've got scheduled I apologize for that, but you, w- you will be able to get to bed earlier. So 3 o'clock instead of 5.30 next week. Good? All right, so uh, last week we started a new series called Deconstructing Deconversion. And if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go onto the podcast and, uh, and catch up. And in this series, we are looking at some of the more well-known stories of people who have deconverted from from Christianity, musicians, artists, uh, famous uh, pastors and believers. And we're trying to break down what what led to some of these things, uh, what what led to this happening. For for so many who are questioning and doubting or deconverting, we're trying to see if there's consistent factors that have led many people to walk away or, or at the very least deeply question the faith that they have held. And we're also trying to figure out, are there things that we should walk away from? 
Are there things that we do need to be deconstructing? Are there things in so-called evangelical Christianity that absolutely need to be deconstructed? Last week, uh, we looked at the story of Joseph Solomon. Joseph Solomon is a, a popular Christian artist, or I should say at this point, former, formerly Christian artist, known for music, spoken word, various uh, other forms of media. His YouTube channel is followed by hundreds of thousands. And so after being on a public platform for a number of years with a self-proclaimed mission to help others follow Jesus more effectively, he announced a couple of weeks ago that he is no longer a Christian. And so we began last week to look at the role of doubt in our lives. And, and in the scriptures, we looked at the story of Gangsta Thomas. You might know him as Doubting Thomas. He ain't though, okay? So if you missed last week's sermon, I encourage you uh, to go back and listen to that. Tonight, we're going to go in a similar direction. We're, we're going to continue to talk about doubt and begin to talk about faith. As, as I mentioned before, over the last several weeks, I've watched, listened to, read dozens of deconversion stories. And, and in these stories, people describe what led them to question Christianity and, and ultimately fall away. And by far, one of the most commonly cited issues was doubt and faith. Many of the stories critique faith as being belief without any evidence. And so, I think we ought to take a look at what faith actually is. In 2015, John Steingard wrote a song entitled Sold Out. Steingard, uh, for those of you that don't know, was the lead singer for a Christian rock band called Hawk Nelson. And in that song, he sings these words. I ain't like no one you've met before. I'm running for the front when they're all running for the door. And I won't sit down, won't back out. You can't ever shut me up because I'm on a mission and I won't quit now. In a world full of followers, I'll be a leader. In a world full of doubters, I'll be a believer. I'm stepping out with no hesitation because that battle's already been won. I'm sold out. I'm no longer living for just myself, running after Jesus with my whole heart, and now I'm ready to show I'm sold out. With every single step that I take now, with every drop of blood left in my veins, I'm going to be making it count. I'm sold out. This ain't just some temporary phase. You can't face this kind of grace and leave the way you came. This is permanent, with intent. And there won't be no stopping now. I'm on a mission, and it's heaven sent. I am sold out. Hawk Nelson first came onto the CCM, Contemporary Christian Music Scene, in 2001. And Steingard joined the band in 2004. Any of you listen to Hawk Nelson? Okay, a few of you. That's good. Uh, During his run with the band, they were nominated for seven Dove Awards and a Grammy. They toured uh, with many of the most popular names in CCM over the last 20 years. But perhaps the biggest headline in the history of the band came in May of 2020 when Steingard, the lead singer, posted on Instagram that he no longer believes in God. As it turns out, what he said was permanent was not so much permanent. In this Instagram post, he spoke about being afraid to speak publicly on the matter, but that he wanted to be uh, starting a conversation 
and that that conversation should be transparent. He said that most of his life, he was defined by religion. He grew up in a Christian home. He was a pastor's kid. But over the last several years, he'd begun to question things that had always surrounded him. He said, when you grow up in a community that holds a shared belief, and that shared belief is so incredibly central to everything, you just simply adopt it. Everyone I was close to believed in God, accepted Jesus in their hearts, so I did too. I became interested in music, began playing and singing on worship teams, started leading worship at church and youth events. But even then, I remember being uncomfortable with certain things. He began to talk more about things that he was uncomfortable with. One of those things is what he called the performative aspects of religion. He said that praying in public felt like weird performance art. That saying things on stage like, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, always felt clunky and awkward. But for a while, he pressed on. He said, I figured I was overthinking all these things. This was the beginning of my doubt, and I began to develop the reflex to simply push it down and soldier on. But these doubts began to grow and grow, even as the band's Christian influence increased all the more. He says, there, there were things that just didn't make sense to me. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Can he not do anything about it? Does he choose not to? Is the evil in the world a result of his desire to give us free will? Okay, then what about famine and disease and floods and all the suffering that isn't caused by humans and our free will? All legitimate questions, legitimate struggles, legitimate doubts. And sadly, Steingard said that when there were moments when he began to voice some of these things to some people around him, the response that he received was to have people tell him, just read the Bible. But in his experience, that only amplified his doubt all the more. He said, it felt like there were a lot of contradictions in the Bible that didn't make sense. So when I began to believe that the Bible was simply a book written by people as flawed and imperfect as I am, that's when my belief in God truly began to unravel. And he described it like pulling a thread on a sweater until the sweater is no more. He said this this happened over the course of several years, and finally I discovered one day that there was no more sweater left. And so now he considers himself to be an agnostic. He doesn't identify with atheism or secular humanism, and truly, he said, he wants to believe. He said, I'd prefer if God was there. I suspect if he is there, he's very different than what I was taught. I know my parents pray that God reveals himself to me. If he is there, I hope he does. So what went awry here? Did anything go awry here? Are the things that Steingard is presenting new? Are are, are these things unique? Or is he expressing the experience of so many people who've grown up in church been in church culture, went along with it because why not? Because all the people around you are there because you would lose so much if you walked away. But eventually, doubt wins out. Today we're going to continue to examine the relationship between faith and doubt. And as it pertains to faith, tonight we're going to ask three questions. What is the function of your faith? 
who is the object of your faith and what is the result of your faith. To put that in a different way, first, what is faith? What is it not? And more pointedly, is faith just belief without evidence? Secondly, who is your faith in? Is your faith in Jesus? Is your faith in the church? Is your faith in famous Christians? And finally, what is the point of your faith? Is it eternal security and daily intimacy with the Lord? An easier life? Better circumstances? Okay, hold on. Is this mic on? Check, check. Yes? Is this mic on? Grip it like a python. Okay, here we go. Um, As we examine these questions... There's a thesis that I want to present as being one of the main roots behind many of these deconversion stories. And that thesis is this. Many people are deconstructing because they have been given a false gospel, a false God, and a false representation of Scripture. And as they walk away from that God, they're led to believe There is no God. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, where we'll look at a part of the story of John the Baptist. Specifically, the part where John the Baptist questions everything he believes about Jesus. Uh, We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. If you don't have your Bibles... The words will be behind me on the screen, and Eli will be showing it to you. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. 
And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So let's begin by giving a little bit of a background into who Jesus, I'm sorry, who John the Baptist is and his role in the story of Jesus. And the reason why I want to begin here is because if, if, if we're honest, we rank Christians, right? We rank believers. There, there's your regular, everyday, average Christians, and then there's the super Christians, right? They're the ones who have it all together. They're the ones who are on stage playing music, preaching, performing, leading ministries. They're the ones who are comfortable praying in public. They're the ones giving all the answers in Bible study. They're the ones being publicly vocal about everything that they believe in and bringing lots of people to church. They are in a league of their own. And then there's the rest of the people who kind of hang back in in many ways. They're the ones in the seats on Sunday, the ones who don't get their name printed on the flyer. They are most people. To use a media vernacular, you could call these two categories the YouTubers and the subscribers, right? Because the super Christians are the ones who get the YouTube channels, specifically the ones that get lots of followers and subscriptions. So the regular Christians are the ones who subscribe and watch the super Christian YouTubers live out their faith. And so then we take these two categories and we ascribe differing levels of faith to them, right? The YouTubers have the faith that we all aspire to. They're the ones that we want to be like. They're the examples. They're, they're the ones who are up there in an echelon all their own that, in a sense, we believe that we could never get to. And then the subscribers, they, they have average faith. And we're going to talk about this more as we go, but what happens when the YouTuber struggles with their faith, the subscribers all say, oh my gosh, how, how did this super Christian falter in faith? Now am I in trouble? And the reason I bring that up is because as we look at John the Baptist, there is no one, literally no one, who could more aptly be described as a super-Christian than John the Baptist? John the Baptist is in a league altogether his own. And I'm not the one who's coming up with that. Jesus said it himself. Did you catch what Jesus said in verse 11? He says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay? Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one, no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, let's break that down. this This is God speaking, okay? Literally, God speaking. The one who created everyone who ever lived. Jesus, who intimately knows every single one of the tens of billions of people throughout history. Jesus, who knows every detail of every life. Jesus, the guy who can look into every single heart. That Jesus, that God, that creator of all, looks at this crowd of people and says, Listen, John the Baptist is the greatest dude who's ever lived. I am not exaggerating in any way, shape, or form when I say that that is the greatest compliment spoken in all of human history. Right? 
what, what greater compliment could there possibly be than having the God of the universe say, no one who has ever been born is as great as this dude. It does not get any better. That, that is a superlative that one person in all of history got, John the Baptist. The only one, okay? So based on the words of Jesus himself, let's go ahead and put John the Baptist in the highest possible echelon of super Christian, okay? He's as it as it gets because God himself said it. That's the dude, okay? John the Baptist lived his entire life on mission to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He lived a life of obscurity and service. The dude wore weird clothes. He ate bugs He lived in the wilderness. He probably didn't have very many friends because who would want to hang out with this oddball? He preached repentance and preached getting ready for the Messiah. And so then when the Messiah shows up, he immediately points all of his followers to the Messiah and says, go and follow him. He must become greater. I must become lesser. Who? Who has lived a more faithful life of service to God than John the Baptist? According to Jesus, nobody. He was so fearless, so faithful, it got him arrested. We we learn from Luke chapter 3 that John was preaching the gospel, and he was bold enough to tell King Herod, okay, this this is the boldness that this guy has. He tells the king, that he's living in sin. And, and Herod was having an affair with his brother's wife, and there, there was all kinds of other evil things. And so John calls him out. Unsurprisingly, Herod didn't like that and throws him in the dungeon. So John is sitting in prison, waiting to hear his fate. And he knows that it doesn't look good. Herod wants to have him killed but is afraid of inciting a riot by doing so. So at this point, John is just sitting there. He's he's in limbo. And he's sitting alone in his jail cell, and he sends a message to Jesus. And that message is one in which he questions the very identity of who Jesus is. Verse 3. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another. Jesus, are, are, are you the one? Are, are, you the, are you actually the Messiah? Okay, now remember, this is the same John who when Jesus comes walking up, John points everyone to him and says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Same guy, says that about Jesus. Now he's sitting in his jail cell and he sends word to Jesus and he's like, I'm wondering now, are you the one? Are are, are you the Messiah? I'm in prison. My, My life is in danger. And can any of us blame John for asking this? You you would think that the Messiah would have busted him out of jail by now, right? That, that he'd have done a miracle, walked through the wall, would have given him the key to the cell, would have been like, what's up, cuz? Let's get out of here. But that wasn't happening. Worse than that, 
is that we don't have any record of Jesus even sending a message to John. It's John who reaches out to Jesus. So I'm sure that John at this point is feeling lonely. He's feeling powerless. He's feeling afraid. He's angry. He's sad. He's confused. And he's got all this time to just sit alone with his thoughts. In many of the recent deconstruction stories, the pandemic played a huge role. It did with Joseph Solomon, and it did with John Steingart. Steingart said this, Quarantine forced us to slow down, like it forced everybody to slow down. Without it, it's possible that I may have just kept on going about life, because life is full. Life is busy. Sometimes you don't always have the time to stop and really think about things. Similarly, in the story that we looked at last week with Joseph Solomon, Joseph Solomon said that the pandemic gave him time to be alone with his doubts. Without the pressure of being on stage every single week, having to keep up the act of being the perfect Christian, being alone, locked up in his house, he had time to let the doubts come to the surface. And ultimately, those doubts won the day. Similarly, John the Baptist is sitting alone in quarantine with his thoughts. He's not out there preaching. He's not out there baptizing. He's not out there on mission pointing people to Jesus. He's quarantined and probably thinking that he's going to die. And so he sends two of his boys with a message to Jesus. And it's not unlike the message that Thomas had last week. How can I be sure that you are the one? And Jesus responds to John the same way that he responded to Thomas, with incredible, incredible grace. So let's look at three aspects of this story and what it teaches us about faith and doubt. If you're taking notes, here is point number one. Faith and proof are not mutually exclusive. Faith and proof are not mutually exclusive. Here, I want us to go back for a moment to something that Joseph Solomon said in the story that that we were talking about last week. When speaking about his battle with doubt, Solomon said, I looked all over for the evidence and I didn't see it. So I kept going forward as if it were true. If that's not faith, what is? So in Joseph Solomon's words, what faith is, is you continue to move forward in the absence of any evidence whatsoever. I was searching for evidence. I was looking for it. It wasn't there. I kept going anyway. If that's not faith, what is? And this is a common thread in these stories of deconversion. There's a moment where a person says, wait a second, why do I believe any of this stuff when there's no proof of it whatsoever? In one of the other stories that I watched a couple of weeks ago, there was, there was a section that stood out to me. Um, there was a YouTuber named Jake the Atheist. And Jake is talking about how he had walked away from Christianity. He grew up in a Christian home. His parents are Christians. His brothers were Christians. And he began to question the Bible. He began to question church. Ultimately, he began to question faith itself. And he said this, Faith seemed like 
a poor foundation to set your life on. Plenty of people have strong faith about things without evidence. But if you require evidence, your faith is weak. And to, to give evidence for that statement, that if you require evidence, your faith is weak, he referenced the story of Doubting Thomas. And again, note my air quotes on Doubting Thomas, okay? He wasn't. And he said that that story is proof. Proof that the Bible teaches that if you ask for any kind of evidence, that means you have weak faith. That God's desire is for you to have faith that just believes without asking any questions whatsoever. And if you do ask questions, if you do have doubts, and God forbid, if you ever raise those doubts in public, that makes you a second-rate Christian. So what happens? What happens when the literal first-rate Christian of all human history questions Jesus? Two things. Jesus gives the requested proof without rebuke. And then he turns around and tells everyone that John is the greatest dude who's ever lived. I want you to notice the timing of that compliment, okay? The timing of that compliment. Jesus did not call John the greatest dude who ever lived before John doubted. He called him that after. He called him after he doubted. After John just questioned his identity about being the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, John just questioned whether or not I am the Messiah. But you know what? Still the greatest dude who has ever lived. That is on purpose. So let's, let's look at these things. First, this idea of proof. So John is sitting in jail. He's, he's been ministering and now he's in quarantine and he wants to know, Jesus, are you the Messiah? That is the central question for all of us, right? The central question is, is Jesus who he said he is? Did he do what he said he did? Is the gospel true? So he wants to know if Jesus is the Messiah and he asks for evidence. He asks for proof. He says, Jesus, are you the one? Or shall we look for another? An honest question. Are you it? Give me something. Give me something. And what does Jesus give John? Jesus answered, tells, us, tells John's two messengers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What Jesus gives John is not only a bunch of really cool things that are happening. Amazing things, right? Things that wouldn't just happen in your average week, okay? It's not your average Wednesday when someone raises from the dead. So he gives him this incredible evidence, but it's not just evidence in the moment. Every single one of these things are things that are prophesied about the Messiah. In the Old Testament, when the Messiah is written about, the Old Testament says about the Messiah that he's going to do these things, that he will bind up the brokenhearted, that he will make the, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, that he will cleanse the leper, that the deaf will hear that the good news will be preached. 
that, that the gospel will go out to those in need. So not only is he saying, look at the things that are happening. These are amazing things. He's also saying, where's the source of these things? I am fitting a profile here. This is incredible evidence for Jesus to look at him and say, you know these scriptures. You know what it says about the Messiah. Here's your evidence. Here's your proof. Here's what you are asking me for. You want to know if I'm the Messiah? Here's the evidence. Instead of saying, John, come on. We go way back, me and you. Don't you remember when when you were in utero and mom showed up and you started doing flips in there? Don't you remember that? We got history, cuz. No, he says, here's evidence that you can actually see and touch. Here's people's testimonies. Here's here's changed lives. Here's dead, raised. This is something real that you can place your faith in. There is this misunderstanding about faith that faith is blind. We have the term, right? Blind faith. And what does blind faith mean? Blind faith is just a shot in the dark. Blind faith is you just hoping on hope and some pie in the sky. No evidence whatsoever, no proof whatsoever. You just close your eyes and you move forward. Like Joseph Solomon said, I looked for evidence. It wasn't there. I kept moving forward blindly. If that's not faith, what is? I'm telling you that is not faith. That is blind hope. And God does not call us to blind hope. He calls us to faith, and faith is not blind. Faith is based on knowledge. Faith is based on knowledge. In in the story that we looked at last week in John uh, about Thomas. So remember, this story is about Thomas going and and saying, listen, I, I, I need some proof here. I I need some evidence. Unless I put my hands on his wounds, I I don't know if I can believe. So John includes this story. And then right after this story, these are the words of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John very clearly says, look, Jesus did a lot of amazing things. I don't have room to write them all. But the reason why I wrote what I wrote, the reason why there's so much testimony available to you here is so that you can see this evidence and believe that it actually is true. Just like Thomas just did. Faith is based on knowledge. The, the most famous verse in the Bible about faith is Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Now, faith is the knowledge of things unseen, the evidence of what is hoped for. But that confidence comes from what is seen. The, the confidence that we have is not in, in just a blind hope. The faith in the unseen is based on what is seen. I'll give you an example. I, I, I've given this example in the past. My daughter, I, I should say my older daughter now because I have two, my older daughter, Marisol, loves to trust fall, okay? She started doing this years ago. She'd be like, Daddy, trust fall, and then she'd fall, okay? 
Initially, this started by me telling her, all right, let's do a trust fall. Daddy will catch you. And, and we'd play this game. I'd come behind her and be like, Daddy will catch you. And she would fall. Before long, it wasn't me starting the game, okay? Before long, it became Marisol wants to play trust fall, and Daddy's not paying attention, okay? So I am doing something else. And she's like, Dad, trust fall. And I'm like, ah! And thankfully, I haven't dropped her on her head yet. It's been years. And so far, I haven't dropped her on her head. So why does she still fall? She, she places herself with her back to me, and she's not even looking at me, and she falls backwards. There is something unseen that she is placing her faith in. Why? Because every other time that she's fallen, daddy catches her. So her faith in the unseen is based on what she has seen. There's evidence that's tangible. She, in her little mind, understands, I know that when I fall, dad catches me. I'm going to keep falling. Now, I have tried to tell her, babe, can you, can you make sure I'm paying attention before you do this? Because it's stressing me out. Okay, I don't, want, I don't want to drop you. Thankfully, again, up to this point, it still continued to work. So faith is in the unseen, but based first on what is seen, based on the evidence that is given. Faith and proof are, are not mutually exclusive. And so when John here asks for some kind of something to hold on to, Jesus gives him something to hold on to. Here's evidence, evidence based on the prophecies spoken hundreds of years ago. And again, Jesus doesn't call John second rate because he doubted. He affirmed him. He affirmed him. He gives him the greatest compliment in human history. So many people who have gone all the way into their deconversion have done so. Because when they questioned, they're told, just believe. Just, just go read the Bible. Just close your eyes. Have faith, dude. Just stop asking questions. Or worse, they're shunned. The, the circle kind of closes and they're not in it. Backs are turned to them. They're, they're criticized for questioning. They're, they're criticized for doubting. Instead of being affirmed, instead of having someone sign up to be their lab partner to help them dissect their doubts, they get cast out. My friends, please, not in this church. Please, not in this church. I want this to be a place where we can have authentic conversation and authentic community, where you will not be looked down upon if you ask questions. Jesus affirmed John even after he heard those questions because he knew that John's greatness wasn't based on whether he'd ever had any doubts. John's greatness was based on his obedience and his faithfulness even in the midst of those doubts. Something that John Steingard said, I agree with. He, he was talking about having doubt and he was talking about having a community in which to express them. He said, I think all the healthiest Christian communities I know are communities where questions are welcomed, where doubts can be processed openly, 
And there's no shame associated with it. He said that if if he had remained silent, he said, I'd be participating in a culture of shame and I don't want to do that. If God is really there, he is strong enough to withstand our questions. I agree 100%. If this is true, if he is real, he's big enough to handle the doubts. He's big enough to handle the questions. He is strong enough to handle all of those wrestlings without any help from us defending his image. We can be gathered together and say, oh, you've got that question? Yeah, me too. I've had that too. So many, like I said before, so many of these times that that I'm reading or or listening to or or watching one of these deconversion stories and a person will say, you know, I had this question and and this is the answer I got. And I'm like, where? Where did you get that answer? Probably from Google. Truly. Because where do you go when you have a question? Google. That's where most of us go. If I want to know about something, I pull up my phone and I type it in. But how much better would it be if we have questions about our faith and we can type in a number instead of a website? A number of somebody here and go, hey, listen, can we, can we have coffee? I need to talk about something. We're going to talk about community uh, a little bit later on. Let's go to point number two. Point number two, the durability of your faith depends on its object. The durability of your faith depends on its object. One of the central questions that we have to ask about faith, that we have to examine is this. Who is your faith in? Because that is going to be the determining factor on whether or not it stands the test of time. If your faith is in anything or anyone other than the real Jesus, I promise it's going to let you down. Yet another feature of many of these deconversion stories is how the church, how, how Christians, or how a particular view of God had let people down. People saying, I no longer believe because this Christian hurt me. I no longer believe because this group of Christians hurt me. I read the Bible and I saw that God is a mass murderer in the Old Testament. How can I believe in a God like that? John Steingard said, how can I believe in a God who allows evil? What does that say about him? So there's this particular view of God that isn't actually the right view of God. Or there's this particular view of Christians or or, or the church that leads a person to say, I don't know if I can be a part of this. I, I don't know if I can have faith in this. And so in every one of these cases, a person deconverts away from the thing that hurt them or the thing that they could not accept. But we have to ask whether a person should have a Christian faith based on these things in the first place. Should that ever be the source of our faith? Let's look at, at what Jesus says to John. Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So he gives them this evidence, and then he makes this statement. He says, And blessed 
is the one who was not offended by me. Some of your translations say, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus, in this statement, takes all of the struggling about John's faith, he takes all of his doubt, he takes all of his questions, and he says, let's make sure that whether you fall away or not is based on me. I'm going to give you the evidence that you're, that you're asking for, and I'm going to tell you that you should not fall away. Blessed are you if you don't fall away because of me. Offended by me. He's saying, your faith stands or falls on me alone, not on anyone else. He doesn't say, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of my followers. Jesus says, eyes on me, John. Eyes on me. What have I done? What have I accomplished? Don't look at anybody else. Look at me. What am I showing you? What evidence am I giving you? Am I giving you enough to answer your question? You, you need to stand or fall on me. Um, last week, when all the Joseph Solomon stuff was, was coming about, um, one of the videos that I watched was by a guy named Ruslan. Daryl and I are, are big Ruslan fans. Uh, Ruslan's a Christian hip-hop artist and has a YouTube channel that's basically social commentary. And so Ruslan had this video about Joseph Solomon and how, you know, he's had his own interactions personally with Joseph Solomon. Um, and he was given some really good points in, in this video. And, and, and one of the things that, that he said was he, he looked at the camera and he said, listen, fam, you, you guys got to realize if your faith isn't an influencer, it's going to fail. Your faith should not be based on some influencer. Your faith should not be based on a person in the church. Your faith should be based on the person of the church. Because anyone lower than that, anyone less than that, is going to let you down. Period. Full stop. They're going to fail. They're going to fall. And when they do, if your faith is because of some famous Christian, if your faith is because of some preacher, if your faith is because of some friend or, or, or whoever... When that person falls, so will you. So your faith can't be based on them. Your, your faith has to be in Jesus. Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. We have to realize Christianity is about Christ. It's not about Christians. Christianity is about Christ. It is not about Christians. Now, I don't want I don't want you to, to hear what I'm not saying, Okay? I don't want you to think that I'm saying that the conduct of Christians is not important because it absolutely is. We all play a role in this community and our actions affect other people. If you do something stupid, it's gonna affect the people around you. If you falter in your faith, it is going to have an effect on the people in your circle, on, the, on whomever you have influence over. So you absolutely have a responsibility, right? And so it's true in a sense that, that looking at Christians is important. To use an analogy from the sports world, if a coach had a team that always sucked, you're probably going to be very skeptical about that coach, right? If that coach, his team gets 
uh, wiped off the field every time they're out there, you're probably not going to think he's a very good coach, right? You're probably going to say, uh, yeah, that dude needs to be on the hot seat. He has no business leading that team. They are terrible every year. Or if who you're talking about is Michigan and Jim Harbaugh is consistently leading them into the ground, you're thinking, dear God, let him stay there forever. Let him continue to run Michigan into the ground. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) You're you're probably going to be skeptical of a team who's always terrible, their coach. But here's the thing. If you look at the greatest coaches, even they have lousy players. Even the greatest coaches have some lousy players on the team. Players who never make it onto the field. Or players that when they do, flub it up every time. But what do you do? You, you look at the overall record of that coach. You look at the number of championships that they have. You look at their win-loss record. And you know that even though there were times that they have some lousy players, that coach is winning all the time. In, in the same way, we could look at the church and, and see that Jesus has had some lousy followers. And we look in the mirror and we go, that's been me. How many times? I have been the lazy, lousy follower. To use a different analogy from the art world, I am not good at art at all. My medium is words, okay? I cannot draw to save my life. My daughter is wonderful at art. At six years old, she can draw 10 times as good as I can, okay? I look like a baby is drawing, She looks like an adult is drawing something. So, that being said, if you were to come to me and say, Sway, I want you to draw a picture of the most beautiful woman in the world. Obviously, I would go, oh, a picture of my wife. Okay, let me try this. And I would draw for you something that looks like a stick figure with more sticks coming out of it, and it would look absolutely nothing like that woman over there. It it, it just wouldn't. But then we have to ask this question. Would my inability to draw a good picture of her make her any less beautiful? No. I can't draw a good picture of her. That doesn't change who she is. So many times, Christians fail to draw a good picture of the beauty of Jesus. We just do. It's a fact. We fail to draw a good portrait. But our failures to draw a good portrait don't change the beauty of Christ. And so our faith can't be based on the abilities of the other Christians to draw a good picture. Our faith has to be based on the person in the picture. That's why it's so important to ask questions. Is this picture of God that I'm struggling to believe in actually the God of the Bible? Where is my faith placed? Because the true God of the Bible is the only one who can bear the weight of your faith. Finally, point number three. Faith is only faith when it starts with God. Faith is only faith when it starts with God. Uh, Going back to the, the YouTuber that I talked about a moment ago, Jake the Atheist. In his story... Jake talked about how his brother died. And he was very um, adamant about 
the fact that that didn't make him mad at God. My brother died, but, but I, I, didn't, I didn't get mad at God. But here's what he said. He said, but I saw that whether you go to church or not doesn't change the circumstances that happen to you. He says, I saw good things and bad things happen to good people and bad people. So if going to church and having faith in God doesn't make a difference on whether good or bad things will happen to you, does faith even work? Well, that depends on what you're asking it to do. Faith works depending on its source. Here's what we have to understand. We cannot put our faith in something that God didn't promise. That's not faith, that's presumption. You cannot put your faith in something that God didn't promise. That is not faith, that is presumption. Here's the thing. God never promised us, ever. He never promised us a life without pain. He never promised us ease. He never promised us a lack of hardship. He never promised us a lack of difficulty. He never promised us health, wealth, or any earthly comfort. In fact, what he did promise was that you would experience the opposite many times. That's what he promised. Now, now many of you guys know the story about my dad. When my dad died in an accident 11 years ago, we were on vacation in Puerto Rico, and he drowned. And, and I would love to tell that story to anybody who wants to hear it. But imagine the struggle that I had after that happened. I, I questioned everything. I questioned my faith. I, I questioned whether I was going to ever see him again. I, I questioned, is this stuff real? And I cried out to God, God, you didn't rescue my dad from the ocean. Now, God didn't literally say this, but he could have said in that moment, when did I ever promise that I was going to save your dad from drowning? I promised that I would save your soul for all of eternity. That's what I promised. I never promised that I would give you everything you ask for. I never promised that I would say yes to everything that you come to me with. I never promised that you would be able to come to me and say, God, I want this, and that you would just get it every time. I I, I never promised that. And when God did say, ask, seek, knock, that was in the context of seeking the things of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will be added unto you. So God didn't promise that that he would just give us whatever we ask, like he's some genie in the sky. Notice in this story that John goes to Jesus through his followers, through his messengers. He, He sends this message to Jesus about whether Jesus is the one. And Jesus sends back the evidence that John needs. And John stays in prison. He stays there. Even worse, John dies, okay? Herod was afraid of killing John because he didn't want to incite a riot. Then Herod throws a rager, and one of his guests is such a good dancer that Herod makes a a, a promise, I'll give you anything you ask. He says this in front of all his guests. Anything you ask up to half my kingdom. 
not realizing that she's in cahoots with some plots. And she comes to him and is like, all right, here's what I want. The head of John the Baptist. Now Herod's stuck. And he's like, I did promise whatever she wanted, I would give to her. So bring John's head. So John goes to Jesus and he says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. And what happens after that is John dies. Have you ever thought it weird that Jesus didn't set him free from prison? That when John struggled with his faith because he's in prison, Jesus didn't say, don't worry, cuz, I'll bust you out. Because, after all, faith in God means having an easier life. No, what Jesus did was Jesus assured him that the gospel was true. Jesus assured him, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Jesus does the opposite of everything American Christianity teaches should happen. American Christianity tells us, follow the Ten Commandments, be nice, do your churchly duties, and God will bless you with health and wealth and an easy life and whatever you ask. And then we get annoyed when we go to God and we ask for something and we didn't get it. And we go, uh, hello, I'm going to church every week. I'm being a good person. When that person cut me off in traffic yesterday, I didn't flip him off. I waved. Okay, I gave a stern look, but that was it. Why are you not giving me the thing that I asked for? John is the greatest person who's ever lived. And what does Jesus do? He leaves him in prison where he's executed. Why does he do that? Well, because God is not a genie who just grants wishes to good little Christians. God has a plan. And sometimes that plan does not make any sense. Sometimes that plan includes very painful things that we wish were not a part of the plan. And when those things happen, when when the things that don't make any sense to us come about, We place our faith in the unseen part based on what we have seen so many times. We place our faith in what we know when the stuff that we see doesn't make sense. Um, I think it was Tim Keller who at one point said, God does not give you everything that you pray for, but he does give you everything that you would pray for if you knew what he knew. God doesn't always give you everything that you ask for. But if you knew what he knew, you would ask for the things that he would want you to ask for, and he always gives you that. God is a father who gives good gifts to his children and guides their lives in the best possible way, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, gets his head chopped off. After my dad died, my dad was a pastor, okay? My dad was, was, was a, a person who was out there changing lives, right? And I, I legitimately wondered, I'm like, God, why would you take out one of the quarterbacks? What, are you, what kind of strategy is this, Lord? He's not a bum sitting on the sideline doing nothing. 
He's ministering to people. He's, he's discipling people. He's mentoring people. Lives are being changed because of this guy, and you're just going to take him out of the game? What are you doing, coach? And God is up in heaven going, you need to calm down. <laughs> Trust me. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly what I'm doing. You need to place your faith in me. And so when we, when we talk about faith, we have to understand that, that faith doesn't mean that you just believe something hard enough and then it happens. Faith is about trusting in what God said. Faith is about starting with what he said and going, you know what? It doesn't make sense, but I'm going to believe it anyway based on all the things that you've proven to me already. When we look at so many of the things that God commanded the Israelites to do in the Old Testament, when he says to Joshua, here's the plan. See that city over there? Giant walls? You're going to walk laps. Trust me, this is going to work. Then, you're going to shout really loud. And they'll come tumbling down. If you're Joshua... Are you not saying, what, what, what about the battering rams? Or um, we, we've got arrows that we can set on fire. Like, what about all that stuff? And God's like, no, no, no. Walk and scream. Okay. Everyone, we're going to walk and scream. And then the people have to decide. Uh, who is this in charge of our army? All the people who are at the battering ram are like, set it down, John, we're, we're just walking. They have to now place their faith. God asked them to do something that didn't make any sense. But they placed their faith in God because they had seen God do pretty incredible things very recently, like the plagues. So they're like, all right, if he wants us to walk and scream, let's walk and scream. And then it works. And I'm sure that they're all looking at each other like, oh my God, it worked. I didn't think it was going to work, but it's amazing. And so then when God asks them to do something else that doesn't make sense, they do it. Faith starts with God. It doesn't start with us. If I stood up here and said, listen, church, we're going to have faith that it's not going to rain for three months. Let's all have faith. That's not faith. That's presumption. And you can believe all you want, and we can pray all we want. It's not going to happen. It's going to rain, okay? I checked the forecast. It's going to rain this week. But God didn't come down here and say, trust me, it's not going to rain. Faith has to start with God and what he actually promised, what he actually said. Faith can't start with us. It starts with God, and it continues with us, obeying him in community. This is the last thing that I'll point out about this story before we close, because I've gone way too long again. In verse 2, it says, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. He sent word by his disciples. In verse 4, Jesus answered them, go and tell John. So John is in prison, and he sends word to Jesus, 
through his two followers. Two, two of his boys go and talk to Jesus. And then Jesus tells these two dudes, here's what John's, what John's looking for. You go back and tell him this. So John, in, in this struggle that he's having, in the questions that he's asking, in the wondering about whether Jesus is the Messiah, the context in which this takes place is through community. The context in which this takes place is others, his friends. His two disciples are the ones who are the messengers back and forth. These are things that we cannot wrestle with on our own. Sometimes we need to tell somebody else, I need you to go and ask Jesus something for me because I'm not getting anything right now. And then those people can come back to us and say, I've brought these questions to the Lord. Let me help you to figure out what he's saying. That's the purpose of this church, the purpose of our campus ministry, the purpose of the body that God designed that we might wrestle through these things in community with one another in authentic, real relationship. That cannot happen if all you do is come into church and say, questions. I don't have any questions. I, I believe. Let's sing.